Hello, and welcome to LambdaCast, the podcast about learning functional programming from the perspective of a working developer. I'd like to introduce our cast for this episode. First off, Aaron Johnson. Hello, everyone. He's a newcomer to functional programming who works mainly in .NET. And Kat Chong. Hi, everyone. Kat is a designer learning functional programming with Haskell. Uh, next is Logan Barnett. Hello. He's a functional JavaScript programmer working on the front end. And I'm your host, David Kuntz. I'm a static functional programming enthusiast working mainly on the front end. We love hearing from you. So if you want to get a hold of us, please send email to contact at lambdacast.com. You can also tweet at us or follow us on Twitter at lambdacast. And if you join the fpchat.com Slack community, we are there on the LambdaCast channel. And finally, if you think we're doing a great job, want to support us, we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash LambdaCast. And we have some patrons to thank uh, this episode. Uh, Pluton, Tim Buckley, and Marcus Nielsen, who has the distinction of being that person who sponsored us at that tier that was effectively a joke tier because who would ever sponsor us at that level so thank you huge shout out to marcus nielsen for that thanks marcus thank you all right this episode we are talking about monads and that's a kind of a traditionally seen as a big scary topic even though i think we're gonna agree by the end of this it is not a big scary topic but it probably bears some some review leading into this so uh let's go over functor first Hey, does anyone want to take a stab at functor? Functor is a uh, structure. Okay. Is it a structure? It is. I want to say <laughs> it's something that can be applied on a stru- structure rather than the structure, if I remember correctly. Yeah, there, there is, I guess, um, a distinction to be made there. In math, the functor is the thing you apply to the structure. And in programming... It's sort of like the structure is capable of having that applied. So we think of the structure as the functor, even though I think from a strict perspective, category theory perspective, you're totally right, Kat, that the functor is actually the operation. Okay. But when we talk about it from like a interface or type class kind of perspective, I think we often talk about the thing, the structure, as the the functor itself. And, And when we say structure, we mean it could be things like all the collections we know and love. Mm-hmm. It could be a promise. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there other things that could be? It could be a function. Just a function itself. Like a function. Isn't itself, everything like... a function in a functional language, anyways? Is that a useful distinction? Five is not a function. Like the number, the literal number five or a string. Right. And, but you could substitute it for a sort of a nullary function. You know, a function that takes zero arguments or takes like a unit kind of a argument and produces that mm. value. You could say from a certain perspective that those are the same thing, right? So we could represent every constant value as a function in, in a certain I way. I guess that, that's kind of what lambda calculus says. Exactly. Right? Like the, then the you're ba- on that the basic path basic calculus. particle <laughs> of, of uh, all programming is functions, and everything can be expressed as a function in some form or another, but that's probably not useful here. Right. The way it sort of plays out in, in practical sense is we do make a distinction between functions and concrete types in most languages right um but functions can be functors which sort of completely destroys the notion that functors are collectiony things if a if a functor being a maybe or a promise didn't already do that um all right maybes are are, yeah maybe uh, very common one Hmm? Uh, either's you know if you've got those in your language 
so there's quite a variety of those. And so we've talked that, that, that they are a structure, but we haven't said what this structure affords us. Like, what's the operation that we care about on isn't, functors? Isn't arm functors always mappable? Is that what is that what, is that the functor? Yep. And they have to return, and they have to have an identity function. Is that also a functor? <clears throat> they have to obey the the rule that if you map ide- the identity function over your functor, you mm-hmm. get back the same functor. Okay. Like it doesn't those, change it. I think if I remember right, those are the two big rules we talked about, and it's actually been a while for us, even though the podcast listeners may not have that long of a time. So it's been a while, but those are the two major rules, the, the mm-hmm. mappable and the, and the identity function. If you map it over, it has to return the same thing. Right. If you map identity over the functor, you get the same functor back. Yeah. And, are, and we're, we're talking about pure functions for all of these. Yes. It's kind of assumed. When yeah. we say functions, we always mean pure functions. Yeah. And also, if I remember right, like a dictionary isn't a functor, maybe because it's not mappable. A dictionary being like a, an associative array. Mm-hmm. So if we talk about the type signature of functor, it says you have some functor parameterized by type A, so an F of A, mm-hmm. and a function from A to B. That so that so map requires the function from A to B and the functor to apply it on, mm-hmm. and then you get back an F of B. So it's taken whatever's inside and turned the A's into the B's using your function. So the uh, a maybe works or list or a promise because they're all like a promise of A. But a dictionary is like a dictionary of A and B because you need both the key and the value, mm-hmm. right? Could, now, the, could the type that you're talking about be a key value pair? It could. Uh, but those are – the way this works out practically in most of the like Haskell-y type um, languages is you don't have a – you implement the functor instance on map – map a <laughs> instead of just map you you implement it on map a such that the b is the thing that you're doing the map operation on so the b you're going basically going from b to c in this case and your a stays the same so you're mapping over the value not the key there there are so you can think of a type as um like a parameterized type a polymorphic type as a type level function that produces a concrete type right so list has the kind star to star Right, because mm-hmm. it, it takes a input and then and so a map, a, an associative race type, has the kind star to star to star. It takes two inputs. So what you do is when you want to implement your dictionary, uh, your map instance for functor, is you partially apply the map kind with one polymorphic type A, and that leaves you with star to star, which does map, sorry, which does match what functor is looking for. So there's like type level machinery to make this happen. You can so you not can out of the box, but you can get there fairly easily. It sounds like. Yeah, well, I mean, it's out of the box in the sense of like there's no language extensions that are needed or anything like that. You just have to understand this like partial application thing that's going on at the kind level. And if you go look up an implementation of uh, functor for say like either, uh, that should be fairly straightforward since you understand what either is doing. It's just like maybe except you know the nothing case is a like with either type. you can't just straight do it you have to there's some coercion you have to do first uh yeah i wouldn't call it coercion because you're not really you're not like converting something it's sort of just a natural result of partial application at the kind level does that make sense it, it, once you see it i think it will make a lot more sense and, and i think also as as a review we're doing we're, we're we've covered this if you're really curious about functors we have a whole episode on it don't we yeah, that's yes, <laughs> yes, you can certainly go back. <laughs> yep. 
So that takes care of functor. It's a structure that supports this map operation on it. Or more correctly, it is a map operation that is compatible with certain, certain types from the categorical view. Um, okay, so then we moved on to an applicative functor, which is similar to a functor in that it allows you to take some operation and run it. Oh, sorry. Before we move on, the important aspect of the map operation is that it allows you to run a function inside an unknown structure. Right. The functor itself is also parameterized, right? What do you mean? When we do a, when we, like map takes an f of a and produces an f of b, right? And f is a parameterized type. It's a higher kinded type in this particular case. Yeah, that comes up in the languages that have that. So um, what that would allow you to do is write a function in terms of something that is a functor, but you don't know which functor. But even if that's not the case, even if you're in F sharp or Elm or Scala, uh, well, Scala has higher kind of types, but um, uh, even in C sharp, you can do a map type operation uh, and without that higher kind of type thing going on, you can't write a generic, you know, a function that operates on a generic functor. That's true. Um, but in any case, let's say you have a, um, let's say you're in C sharp, right? So let's go down to like a non-functional language. I can take a regular function that goes from A to B, let's say two string. And I can take that function and I can run it inside the context of some type that I don't know anything about the internals of, like list right. or array or whatever. And uh, in languages that have, and it, if you had, um, you could implement your own maybe type in C sharp and have it conform to like the link specifications, you could use it there. And then you could select over your maybe. So, and select is the map in C-sharp. So what you're doing is you're taking this regular function, this two-string function, and you're running it inside this other context. That's the power of map. Like, we don't have to know the specifics of how to get the value out of the structure, run the function on it, and then put it back in the structure. We reverse that. We hand the function to the structure and say, hey, structure, you know how to you know, work with your internals. Why don't you go do that for me? And sometimes the structure says no, Right? If, if it's a maybe and the value is of type nothing, the structure goes, mm, nope, I have a nothing in just here. It just doesn't run it. Yeah, here's yeah. your nothing back, right? Yeah. We don't do anything. So the structure gets to decide how to apply that function to the value inside it, which means the structure gets to maintain rules in variance about that value. And if you're used to OO, this should feel very much like an OO class idea, right? The idea you hear about OO is like the class protects its data, right? It can't, it can't let anything get in there. That's actually what's happening here. Functor is a way for this type to protect the value inside it, and nothing can mess with it if it's not allowed. This isn't quite the same as protecting data so much as it is isolating concerns, right? Like because we have the signature of map, we don't have to care what the functor is. Well, in C sharp we do, right? Or in Elm we do, or in F sharp we do. Like we still have to say list.map versus ray.map. But the but the predicate doesn't need to know anything about it because of how map is structured. The the well, it's not a predicate, which is but the the A to B function. Yeah, uh, that's true. Uh, but you could accomplish that with a class. You could you could have a higher order method, right? That takes in a function and like you could you could implement you could see this being implemented on a regular object, right? In this way, sure, and this sure. is a different style of this idea of let's protect some data from manipulation. Like with maybe you want to protect the data such that 
you don't try to just reach in and grab. There's no dot value on your maybe, right? Where you can just get the thing out because right. it might not be there. Well, it's, it's not. It's not there. It, or it might right. not be there. Yeah, right. I mean, you have to handle the case of it being there and it not exactly, being there. exactly. And so, and with either, you have to handle the. I might have a left. I might have a right. And so, by giving the map function over to the either, it gets to decide what to do, and it can maintain the the invariants that are important to that type that makes an either separate from a maybe versus a promise or a or list. So I don't know if that helps to associate that with sort of like this idea of encapsulation. This is actually, in my opinion, encapsulation that works, that's not leaky. Okay, so the next uh, sort of structure that we had talked about was the applicative functor. And the applicative functor is like a functor in that you can sort of hand a function over into the structure and the structure can decide if it should run it and you know and how uh, but this one's a little bit different because you can lift up a uh, a function that takes more than that has more than one argument so we talked about two string two string is like an a to b function right now we can we could do something like uh, concatenate like an append it's a binary function it takes two two arguments and we could lift that up inside of our structure our maybe or a promise or whatever and then we can use the apply function so, so that's just a regular map. You take, you take map and you map it over some value and it partially applies that function, right? So if we have a, if we have just five and we map plus over that, we get just five plus, right? Five has been applied to the plus function, but we're still like missing that second argument. And then we can use the apply function that takes two of these structures, whatever they are, these applicative functors. And it takes the value from the second one, if it's there, if it, if it has this concept of a value, and it applies the thing inside that to the thing inside the first. So we have just five plus in the first one, and we have seven in the second one. So it'll take the seven and apply it to the five plus within the structure and obeying all the rules of it. So if there are promises, they have to resolve. If there are uh, maybes, it's checking for nothings. If they're either's, it's checking for rights instead of lefts, that sort of thing. And just as another real quick review, and I'm maybe not the best person to go over this, but partially applied functions are another concept we've covered here in the in the in the cast. And it just is a way of well, to, to really simplify it here as a super quick review, you can take a function with multiple arguments and split it up so that it's a function it's two separate functions with one argument for each. You create a new function that has arguments baked into it. Yes, exactly. The effect is it reduces the number of parameters that you need in order to invoke it. For our C-sharp developers out there, that's not something that comes up real often, so I thought it was worth just touching on that real quick. Yeah, the sort of the equivalent of this in C-sharp is pretty ugly because it's a function that takes one argument that returns a function that takes one argument that returns a function that takes one argument that then finally does the work with all the three arguments. I don't use partial application in my day-to-day <laughs> yeah, that's in pretty tough. Day there. In JavaScript, though, it is pretty uh, tractable, though, because you can write that signature out very easily. Yeah, no, I can see. And there's libraries to do it for you. So that's a place where the dynamic languages, well, you give up the static typing side of things, are very um, malleable to support some of these ideas. And so, I'm sorry, so the, for the applicative functor, what you're saying is that it, uh, it uses a partial application, and it can take, um, instead of just a list or a dictionary or maybe these one argument containers or structures, sorry, not containers, these one argu- argument um, containers, it, it can take something with multiple arguments, not just two, right? Isn't it applicative two or more? Oh, so it's not the container that 
or it's not that sorry not container it's not the yeah. structure that that makes it a one argument or two argument it's mm-hmm. the map function so map says i take an a to b mm-hmm. that's a one argument function yeah it takes a, you, yeah. you could you could not pass in plus to map right because map mm-hmm. takes or plus takes two arguments and then produces the third or right. like an yeah. append if, or if something pl- like or that. Some. Yeah, yeah. Max. Yeah, whatever. Sure. What you'd have to do is if you want to use that with map, you would have to partially apply your function to turn it to one argument function. Then you could pass it into map. Mm-hmm. Right. So you could map plus one over everything in your, your right. whatever. If, your if plus one is a function that takes a number and adds one to it. Right. Exactly. I'm just saying you take plus, partially apply it with one, and then now you have a function you could pass into map. But if you wanted to have both of your values come out of these stru- things wrapped up in these structures. If you want both of them to be dynamic as opposed to I just I baked one that happens to everything. Yeah, then you need apply saying, because you you map your plus over the first one, mm-hmm. right? And so you get a, a partially applied function, plus one or whatever. Uh, and then you can say apply the second argument and the third. And so it could be a four argument function. That's mm-hmm. totally fine, right? Map it to the first one. So the first one, the first maybe, let's just pretend we're doing maybes. So you map your four argument function over the first maybe, and you get that function partially applied. And then you say apply the next maybe. Mm-hmm. And if there's if it's a just, you'll get the second uh, value uh, applied to your, partially applied to your function. And mm-hmm. then the third, and then by the time you get, when you get the fourth, now you end up with a maybe of whatever the result of that function is. Yeah. Which, as I, if I recall correctly, you guys said is really often used in validation. This is where most often, that's, that's like the number one use case for this. Uh, that's a pretty common use case, yeah. I use it, um, I've used it definitely when I had a couple uh, maybes that came back from things. Like uh, I was doing something the other day where I had multiple maps and I need to go pull out values out of the maps. Mm-hmm. And so I got maybes back because uh, maps, if they're uh, like a lookup kind of function, has to return a maybe because you might give it a key that's not in the map. Right. And I didn't want to like sit there and unwrap everything. So I just lifted the function that I wanted to do into the map, into the maybe structure, and then used apply to combine them. And then at the very end, pulled my value out. Mm. Are you using lift, lift as a general term or the actual function name lift? Uh, sorry, I was not using the actual function name lift that gets used for something else. Um, I was using it in the general sense of taking my. Uh, my function and putting it up into the structure and and there is a function that does that called pure pure which just goes from a to f of a so it just takes the thing and puts it into the structure so is there a difference between lift and wrap or are they synonymous concepts uh, lift i almost always hear used in a in like haskell and stuff in this specific context with this thing called monad transformers, which we're not going to talk about. <laughs> and it, and it's right. just about like matching up like which layer of this stack that you're in. Um, but wrap is a good like intuition, I think, for what's going on here. That that what pure is doing is taking a value and putting okay. it into the context. I like calling that lift. I, I wish lift was used for that. Um, but pure is the name that got picked for that. Pure or return. Okay, because I was hearing both and I was getting confused if they mean the same action of like when pure is being used is it lifting and unwrapping or is it just doing what i'm i'm actually confused so it's going from an a to an f of a so however you conceptualize the a being part of an f of an f of a now right there's additional structure around it which you could think of as wrapping but we don't want to get too hung up on it being a collection-y thing okay you know what i mean like maybe it's not really a collection but it's a 
structure that holds a value inside, right? So it gets transformed, like, say, Iron Man puts on a suit. Right. Um, you could say yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. P- pure is like Tony Stark results in Iron Man with a Tony Stark inside. Okay. Got yeah. it. Although that, again, emphasizes the kind of collection-y, wrapper-y thing, where this does work for things like functions themselves. And so that intuition can um, feel weird at certain points. Uh, under, understand that it's more generalized than the than the examples that we're giving. But most of the things that you run into and you use do have the value inside a shell of some sort thing going on. Okay. That, that is the, a very the, common... The promise. Yeah, resolve exactly. that gives you the pre-resolved promise mm-hmm. and all that. Exactly. Not pre-resolved, but soon to be resolved with a known value. So, uh, functor has just one operation, the map. Applicative functor has two operations, pure, which takes the um, value and puts it into the structure, and apply, which takes uh, a partially applied function inside the structure and a regular value inside another one of the structure, and it applies the value to the function as if they weren't in the structure, and then keeps it wrapped up in that structure. And all of that is much easier to visualize if you go look at some type signatures. (laughs) So I super encourage you to go look at some examples of apply, and I think it will become fairly uh, straightforward what is going on there. Use Lambda Cast to enhance your understanding of functional programming, not be the only source. Yes, <laughs> definitely. For sure. Okay, and then the last little bit of talking about this was this whole general idea of structure, which I think we did. Uh, we pointed out that it's not about collections. There's things that don't follow that convention of th- they aren't collection-y things. It's about the essential properties of what makes one thing different from another, right? So the when we talk about structure, the structure of a maybe is I might have a value, I might not have a value. That's what makes a maybe a maybe. And this essential structure of a promise is I might not yet have a value, right? The temporal nature is what makes a promise interesting. Um, and either I either have a certain type, you know, an A type or a B type. That's what makes an I, that's the essential structure there. So uh, we are definitely going to keep talking about structures here, um, especially as we get to monads, because as we kind of go up this chain, we get more and more power. So there's more things that tend to be, um, well, I guess I'm saying that wrong. There are less inhabitants, meaning there's less types that can satisfy these constraints. Like there's more functors than there are applicative functors because all applicative functors are functors, right? So I, I guess they could be equal. The sets could be equal to each other and there's not there's zero extra uh, functors over applicative functors, but that's not the way it turns out. There are less applicative functors than functors. And there are less monads than applicative functors because monads are also applicative functors, which means they're also functors. So uh, after we get this chain, there's less things that we can make, like there's less types that fit. But as it turns out, there's a lot of really useful monads. (laughs) So uh, it's going to seem like there's a lot of different structures as we move forward that are all the same kind of thing, that are very different from each other. Okay, so... Uh, I would posit that everyone listening to this cast has used a monad at least once. And certainly if you've ever used a promise in JavaScript, you have programmed monadically. And if you've ever used link, you've programmed monadically. And I'm trying to think of other good examples that are like super common. Those two come to mind. Is, is that just because we're doing imperative things? 
it's not that we're – so that is a good um, thing to point out. A lot of people say monads are about like imperative programming or something like that. It's not. It's it's that the um, – we talked about the essential structure of like a, a map or an applicative. The essential structure of a monad is that it is a sequenced series of operations on data. And it turns out that's also true of imperative programming, Right? So if we think of the difference between imperative programming and functional programming, the first thing we run into is in functional programming, everything's an expression, right? We don't have statements. We only have expressions. And expressions, for the most part, have no constraint on their or their evaluation order, right? You can... you can, right. you can a, a monad, sorry, thing that enforces this. But yeah, but a monad puts you back in a strict evaluation order. Well... And the, this is why, like... This is why your entry point for a Haskell application is the uh, uh, you have that do block with uh, with the I/O in it, right? Yeah, I, I would say that's for two reasons. Um, one is that Haskell has decided that the I/O monad is the way we will contain effectful computations. Is that we'll we'll stick them inside this I/O monad. You don't. Like technically, you could write a program that didn't start there. Although, since you can't do I/O, you couldn't actually ever right. see the it's results just, of it. The only thing you could do is make the box warm, right? And, right, right. And then your program ends. But there's no reason you would have to start in a monad. Now, it does turn out that it is, it is useful, right? Because often we do want to do a series of um, effectful things, so we need to be in I/O, and we need those. Uh, well, well, we'll get to why we use monads for I.O. in a minute, but it is often a very useful thing to start in a monadic context where you can say, do this, then this, then this, then this, as your main. That, that, those go together very well. So it makes sense why they would have picked what they did. But monads are much more than I.O. People kind of think of, I've heard like serious conference presentations where the speaker said, monads are useful for doing I.O. and that's why you would care about them. That's like saying, lists are useful uh, because they have a length, and that's why we care about lists, because you can determine the length of how many elements are in it. And, you know, that that's why we need them. It's like, okay, so you're you're correct that we can determine the length of a list. That's a useful property, but that you're really missing the point on why we have lists. Um, so the, the reason we care about monads is we want to force A to happen, then B to happen, and then C to happen. And we want to be able to step in in between these points, okay? So monads are sometimes called programmable semicolons to relate them back to sort of an imperative concept. So in imperative land, uh, you could think of every single line in your program is this monadic sequence, right? (laughs) You start at the top of your function. Do this thing, and then do this thing. Exactly. And then do this thing. Right. Do this thing, then this thing, this thing. And in a in a functional land, it's kind of weird because like that's not necessarily how it's happening. And especially in like a Haskell where it's lazy, it might very well execute quite different than with the way it's written, depending on what is forced and, and how laziness kicks yeah. in there. I'm told you can even run the same Haskell program a second time and it can take a dramatically different amount of time to complete because it's already like cached some of the results. Um, I don't know enough about Haskell performance stuff to comment on that. Okay. I know it can auto memoize certain things and i think you but can the idea is it isn't obeying necessarily like the order in which everything's declared right uh yeah, yeah. and so the, that that's the one of the things that makes haskell sometimes harder to to tune is 
some of the complexity of when do things get evaluated is not as predictable. Now we could we could keep all of our rules the same and go to a strict language like Scala or uh, PureScript or Elm or something, right? Uh, those are strict or Idris. Those are strict languages, um, and they still have Monad concepts in them. So there, things will happen predictably, kind of every time. So I, I don't want to say that monads have anything to do with laziness. Again, that's that's not a connection at all. Um, just that monads embed this idea of sequential sort of computation. Okay, and the way they do it is uh, with they don't have a map function and they don't have an apply function the, the way that functor and applicative do. They have something called bind. That's the name of their function. And so what bind is is bind looks almost just like map. It takes an m of a, so we use m here instead of f, but it's that's arbitrary. It could be f of a, right? People a usually write it as thing? yeah, that... exactly m of a, yeah. So people have an m of a and a function. So if we were to use m for functor, we would say we have an m of a and an a to b, and we get an m of b, right? That's that would be that type signature for, for map. For map, for map mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Bind is an m of a. And an A to MB produces an M of B. So it's almost like map, except that we've gone not from A to B, but from A to MB. Uh, is it this, I'm putting it in another functor? We, we are choosing the next monad instance that will be returned. So the okay. an example of where map and bind are different would be this. If you have a... Uh, if you have a just five, your A to B function will be just something. <laughs> it could be a just a string or a just a whatever, right? Your B can be pretty much anything, right? But it will still be wrapped up in a just. There is no way using map to go from a just to a nothing. Um, I have an example. Um, so I was told that monad's great because you can change the type. So like you mentioned, map is just a number to just a number. So it has to be the same type. Whereas monad is different, um, it can allow you to go from string to int or whatever type. So a really good analogy might be like a wedding. Two separate people um, go into the wedding and they come out as a totally new unit of a different type. So um, maybe that's a good visual to show how you could have a function applied on separate things and come up with something completely different from the two that entered. I guess I would, uh, I'm going to contradict you slightly here. Okay, sure. So the M has to stay the same. Whatever the type of M is, it's got to be the same okay. going in and going out. So you, you can go from one. So this is where some types are so important, right? Some types are where you can say it's this or this or this, but they're all the same type. So you can change your data constructor. So you can go from a just to a nothing or a left to a right or a, uh, say you have a type person equals uh, single with a name or couple with two names or something like that, right? To kind of use your example, right? So you could you could go in as single and come out as couple. Like you could change the data constructor. You're still a sure. type person. So your M hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. um, but the data constructor has changed. The case has changed. So you could go from, you can do a just int to adjust string. But we could do that with map. In the overall sense of the operation. Yes, but we could have done that with map. Right. What we can't do is go from adjust int to a nothing of string. Ah, okay. 
And usually we don't talk about the type of this, the nothing, but nothing is a maybe, and it could have a different type. So we can change both of those. I see. Because we, we go from an A to an MB. So we get to go from A to a B, so we get to choose the parameterized type, but we also get to choose the case of the M that we're on. So let's say you have a state machine, right? And you have it like doesn't three, have to be the same functor, but it does have to be the same type of functor. Uh, it has to be the same functor, but it could be the different case of the of the well, it's of the monad, okay. really, not the functor. So let's say we had a state machine, right? And you have like three states, A, B, and C. You could use bind to go from the A state to the B state, or the B state to the C state. Like you could choose which state you're going to next, and and return a new value of that state. What is state? Um, how th- how does that apply here? Sorry, I-, I was talking about just like a state machine um, where you have like where oh, you're okay. in one of these three states and you can like transition between them. Okay. Your bind could be your transition where it decides given I'm in an A with this value, do I go to B? Do I go to C? Do I stay in A? You could make that decision. You couldn't do that with map because oh. in map, if you're in A, you're going to stay in A. If you're B, you're going to stay in B. If you're C, you're going to stay in C. Okay. Because the mapping operation takes place within that that type. Ah, okay. So monads uh, allow you to kind of pick the next thing in the chain. And as a result, they also allow you to not go to the next step in the chain. That's that's kind of uh, similar to what uh, map does, right? Map, if you're trying to map over a, a nothing, it sort of says, I'm not going to apply that function, right? Because there's nothing to apply it to. Uh, monads are used in that same way. And, and and in that sense, that's how they get this kind of reputation as a programmable semicolon. Because you can break the monad chain and say, nope, I'm done. I'm bailing out. Yeah, at every bind, which is kind of like a line break, right? At every bind, you can say, uh, when going to the next monad in my, in my sequence, what is the rule? So every monad is some structure, right? And structures have rules about them. What, what does it mean to go to the next thing? And very similar to the way map can like short circuit and not go to the next, uh, not run any more sort of operations on the value inside, uh, monads are used in that same way. So how am I using these with promises? So anytime you use dot then in mm-hmm. in a uh, in a promise, you are dot then is bind. It's not map. Correct. It's not map because dot because map says. You have a value. Because I can return a new promise. You return a new promise, right? And you can't run the dot then until the previous value is available. Um, so as a quick explanation here, in JavaScript, uh, a promise is something that says, okay, well, you're going to get a value eventually, but we, don't, we might not have it yet. Dot then is something that would evaluate after that promise came through. Is that what's happening? So Yes. I promise this, I, and it may not even get evaluated at all. If the promise may, doesn't your never promise happen, may right? not resolve, it might reject. Yeah, if you're waiting for a packet that never come never comes or something. Yep. So, so yep. if we were doing promises in in a language with some types, F sharp or whatever, we would say a promise is either a like a pending value of some type or a failed value of some type, right? Like there would be some sort of uh, choice between those. Yeah, I imagine usually you say like, if a promise doesn't come through, this is what we do. As part of how promise works, right? The fail is is the value, yes. the, 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 the default, so to speak. That's the error. And that's not part of the way monad would be implemented because monad only has this one operation, this bind. There, there mm-hmm. are other type classes that deal with um, the case of an error or a failure. Sure. 
Um, mm. And so you can look up there. There's a bunch of variations on Monad. There's like Monad Plus and Monad Fail. And, and so there's other kind of variations that capture those properties. But the straight, like normal Monad just says, when a value becomes available, run this other function. And I think that, so you said the signature, if I remember right, was that you'd like take an A and an M of B. And that's, or you, you take an A and you return an M of B. And so you... Right. Start with the monad. So if promise is a monad, you start with the promise of A and you also have that A and then you return back that promise of B in this scenario. Yeah. So your function takes the result of the previous promise as its Mm -hmm. input. That's your A. And then you produce the next promise that gets returned. And so dot then has to produce a new promise? Yes. uh, And I know we're maybe getting into JavaScript here, but but why is that? Because we know if dot then is evaluating, we know we do have a good A. Right, we got the actual value. We didn't get the error state. So the 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 callback that's invoked that you pass then is what gets evaluated if you achieve the happy path, and you don't know when it's going to be called, so it's out of sequence. So it has to be a callback that you're providing. Okay, has to be, or yeah, has to be a promise. Right, like there. execution has to fall off. You have to go say, go do this thing, and it gives me a promise, and I'm going to hook onto that promise and say, when it completes, go start executing this stuff, and then I'm going to let you go and continue execution. Right. But we're we're really building up a big data structure, right? That then goes and runs. I mean, I guess you get you get into implementation specifics and say in JavaScript it starts immediately and you're just like hooking on these dot thens. Uh, in something like a Haskell, you're actually building up a big data structure. And then if it was a promisey kind of a thing, you'd build up this whole data structure where you do dot bind where you where you bind it a bunch of times, you know, to these extra functions that are going to run in sequence. And then you take that whole big thing and hand it off and say, go run this for me. And if they're all packaged together, I could see where you might need that second part to, well, I can kind of see where you might need that second part to be a promise in this example. But this happens in JavaScript. It's just happening behind the scenes. If you if you return five from your promise, you get a promise.resolve five like around it, mm-hmm. right? You don't just get five out the other end. The then always returns a promise, even if right. your callback didn't. Your callback can return a promise or not in JavaScript, but the ultimate result is is that you're getting a promise back. Because you can always dot then off the end of it, even if you just returned five inside the function. There's no type system to enforce you to return promise.resolve five. Hmm. And that and that's how eventually you have to reach the end of the promise, and that's how you know, where you actually like get a real value and you get to work with it. Mm-hmm. That's that's how that gets achieved in JavaScript. At some point, it can't be promises all the way down. It has to stop somewhere. Otherwise, you'd never have an oper- something to operate on. So monads themselves, the uh, they only have bind. And then because they're applicatives, they also have pure. So you have a way to get a value inside. Pure is also called return. You have a way to get a value inside this monad, but you have no way to get it out. Monads say nothing about how you get a value out. The, the way you get a value out is specific to that structure. So if it's a maybe, maybe has a way to get something out of the maybe, right? It has like a with default kind of thing. Are you actually getting it out or are you just working with it? Like once you're in a monad, you're stuck in one, right? When you bind, you, you are injecting a function into the monad, right? Just like map. It runs inside and it produces a new, uh, the next monad a in the monad. sequence, right? And actually we could talk about this. Uh, the bind function is actually, uh, internally, it can be implemented as map combined with another function. So let's, let's say we have our M of A and we have our A to M of B. If we map the A to M of B over the M of A, then, then we have an M of 
m of b. Because our a turns into an m of b, and that's inside the m, right? We have m of a. The a goes from being an a to an m of b, because that's what our function says, a to m of b. So we get an m of m of b. So that, that's kind of weird. That's what our map results in. And so there's this other function called join. And what join does is it says if you have an m of m of whatever, I can give you back just an m of whatever. It's your array flatten. It's it's array.flatten, exactly. But more general. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So bind is just map composed with join. And, and you, that's often implemented. Those functions are implemented for you if you want to use those. Um, I actually have used join as a standalone function because it's useful in that regard. So bind is a convenient way to do both of those at the same time. Okay, so uh, you can think of map, or you can think of bind as a map followed by a, a collapse, like a map followed by join, and that allows us to make a decision about where we're going next in the sequence, which is very much like the way promises operate. And and just to iterate over this, now we said that monads for I/O, it's it it limits our what we can think about with how what we can do with monads, right? But I/O is a thing we can do with monads. It's one thing we can do with monads amongst a right, whole is bunch. A thing. Yes. Sure. 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 Yeah. In understanding that, the reason why it is good for I/O is because we can control the sequence. That's one part. Uh, it's like I can write to a buffer, and I can ensure that all the results go in the buffer in the correct order. Yeah, we open the file, then we read from the file, then we write to the file. We don't do it in a random order, right? We don't do it just right. in whichever order. It Not to mention random lines of like curly braces for my JSON, and just like, oh, I hope you figure it out. Right. We can say exactly do it in this order, then that order, then the other. And and you know that yeah. about this about bind, because when you um, if you were to write this out with bind, you would see that the input to the a to mb function comes from the previous monad, right? Which might be the result of another bind. Right, the type, the type signature is for itself enforces sequence. It does, yes, because you can't, you can't do any subsequent uh, a to mb functions until the previous a to mb function has happened. If you're chaining like three of these together, because obviously you have to produce the next value in the sequence before its bind can run which has to happen before the next bind can run. So the type signature, just by looking at it, tells you that it must be sequential. Now, the reason we use monads for IO is, is one, the thing you're talking about, where mm -hmm. uh, we can enforce like a sequential ordering of them. The second thing is what Aaron brought up. We can put a value into a monad with pure, and we can run a function uh, to produce a new monad inside the monad using bind, but we have no way of getting value out. Not not at least according to the monad uh, itself, right? The monad type class mm -hmm. or interface has no ability to do that. So that is actually really useful for IO. And in fact, the IO monad has no way to get the value out. That's the point of IO, <laughs> is that you can put values in, but you can't take random values out. Because what if you took a value out that was uh, effectful, right? Or was going to change as a result of something else? So it allows us to have a black box that you can you can inject new functions into. You can lift or wrap or whatever we're saying. You can put the functions into the I.O., have them run, produce new I.O.s, but you can't then say, ah, just give me the results of that random function and I'm going to call it you know X or something and use it over here in my pure functions. 
So we run our pure functions inside the IO. We don't do our IO inside our pure functions. And that's why main, that's the other reason why main has to be. Otherwise it would make them impure, right? Right. That would, that would make things impure. Right. And that's the other reason why main has to be IO. So we can put values into IO using pure, but that's a one-way trip. We can bind to produce a new IO, right? So we can go from an IO operation of string to an IO operation of int. That works. But that int that's inside there, we can never just take it out and then hand it off to a pure function, like on its own. We can't get anything out. If we're passing around an IO value, and, and again, an IO monad, it's just a value. It's just data. It's nothing special. So we could pass around these IO, they're usually called actions, IO actions. We could pass around these IO actions, so we could have functions that produce them and return them and all that kind of stuff. But we can't ever say, you know that thing that you handed me back, that IO action that you handed me back? I want to pull the five out of it inside this pure function and hand it off to some other pure function. Because that, that you know, X that you, that's inside the IO or whatever might be the result of a random function. So it would not be the same the next time you ran it. It would be impure. So we can put things into our IO, but we can't take them out. And that's why our main is IO, because that gives us a way to get values out at the end. And it's we do it by writing to the console or uh, writing to a socket or writing to a file or whatever. At some point, you have to write to something or your program basically is not useful. It's not useful, exactly. So our top-level thing is IO because... Um, if it wasn't, we could never use I.O. If our top level thing was pure, we couldn't then yeah. use I.O. values if, inside if our If you run function. your program and there's nothing to see, if there's no effect to observe or anything like that, as much as we talk about how much we love pure functions, eventually the tires have to hit the pavement. We have to write to something. Right. And so this is sort of that structure we talked about way a whole bunch of episodes ago where your main is like effectful. That's like our I.O. thing. And it can use other effectful functions, which can then use pure functions that return values back. But we can't like have an effectful function use a pure function that then uses an effectful function that that would in that would make the pure function effectful, right? So anything that returns an I/O is sort of taken on this. You're, lo you're locked in. Yeah, you're locked in now. You're now in this effectful camp, and basically you can only be called from main or things that main calls, other functions that main calls. That's the only place to make that happen. And these I/O this I/O monad is a uh, it's opaque, right? There's no ways to get values it out of it from the language's perspective, but the runtime has ways of getting values out. And that's how it actually makes it work. So behind the scenes, yes, there is special backdoor things that allow values to get pulled out. And that's how the the stuff gets written to the console or to the file system or whatever. But that from our perspective, that doesn't exist. Like you said, promises are these same kinds of structures, right? And once you've once you've entered a promise, you cannot leave it. Well that's not true though, because at the very end of the day you can get a value out of a promise. Well, you can use a value from a promise, but you can't get it out of the promise. Why right? not? You can get one out of a maybe. It's just controlled, right? You have to say from from maybe or from default or whatever it's called in your language, where you say, "I'm get me the value if there is one, and if there's not one, use this, this default value. I suppose promises maybe break that a little bit more because of the sequence in which they get executed. But I mean, at the end of the day, can't you pattern match on your promise and say like, which one, did we get the error case or did we get the success case? Like I mean, you get like the then and the catch. Right. right. But but you're inside the promise at that point. You so haven't left it. In JavaScript, this is true. Um, is there okay. no dot value at the end of the day on your promise? Nope. Okay. Nope. So they're expecting you to just like overwrite a variable that's in scope or something to get your value out of the promise. 
you're, you're stuck on a problem or, or call some function. I mean, sometimes your framework can kind of like hide that from you, but it's yeah. like you have to begin a whole new event chain and all that. Okay, so I mean, specifics of JavaScript aside, um, promises okay. in a in a like a in a functional language would have a way to get a value out. Like you could pattern match on them or, or extract that value out in some way. Okay. Generally speaking, now if they're if it's a pro if the promise is allowed to do effectful things, then it's actually like an asynchronous effectful IO type thing, and you, and then it is an IO, and then you're not getting the value out. I guess that's a concession JavaScript has to make because it, at the end of the day, it is an imperative language. It has to account for sequence, and so they have to protect that somehow. Yeah, and they don't just discriminate between pure functions and effectful functions. Like so. you have to fall off the stack in order for the promises to get evaluated. That's just it's just not possible to do anything else. But in a functional language, that's not uh, necessarily the case. You're saying. Uh, well, so your I/O is still not evaluated until the runtime chooses to evaluate it. So you can like pass those around, and they're not running yet. It's only when they get like. Uh, hang on, I can't have. So if I if I'm in a function that works with a promise, and I pattern match the value out of the promise, can I return something that's not a promise? Uh, yeah, because you're not calling bind. It's only bind that says the next thing must be a promise. But if so, it depends on the implementation of promise in your language, right? So if if promise is implemented with data constructors, like like think of maybe, right? Mm -hmm. So you you have a you have a maybe. You can use a function like from maybe to or like with default or whatever it's called to get the value out or the default, right? That's that's a, a mm -hmm. function that goes from a maybe of a to an a. But you could also take okay. your maybe pattern match on both its data constructors, nothing and just. And then you have two different cases now, and they both have to return the same kind of value, the same type of value, but you will get a choice on what to do. It, if promises are implemented kind of in that same way, you would be able to do the same thing. It, that's very specific to the language. So you're saying like Haskell doesn't have that? Haskell tends to do that stuff just as IO. And PureScript does it as this type called AFF, A -F -F, which is an asynchronous an effect. effect. Yeah, yeah. where EFFF is their synchronous effect. Got it. And so um, basically they do all their stuff inside IO. So let's get to a real quick concrete example if we could. Yeah, let's. let's... I, so we're talking about IO here. We're talking IO is input output. So let's say we have a little application. The only thing you can do is you can type in your name and then you press a little button and your name shows up on the screen. Mm -hmm. It sounds like what you're saying is, nope, that's impossible because you can't get anything out of IO. Is so that true? You can't get anything out of IO. The runtime can. So you would use a function that writes to the console or reads from the console. That writes, that reads, so some, so it would have to write the value that I typed in that text box to the console if you wanted to, like you'd have to have a function that wrote to the console. Oh, no, no, you could have another function. If you're talking about like you have a UI with like element, let's say you're like in the browser, right? Yeah, I don't, it doesn't really matter where we are. We could be in a console wherever, just somewhere sure. where the user can type something and then we respond yeah. by saying that same thing back. We say hello world to them or hello Dave. Right, so in your I/O kind of uh, monad, your in your mm -hmm. main, you would set up a sequence that says you probably have like an event kind of system going on, like when they mm -hmm. click a button, an event comes in, and then you could go and read from a certain DOM node. You know, find that DOM node and get the value out of the text box. Do some mm -hmm. calculation, find some other DOM node, and like overwrite its value with the result of your, you know, you typed in blah or whatever. But so, but I thought we. I thought we're not allowed. So when you're saying right of the DOM node, that that's that's like the right of the console idea. But you're saying that uh, 
So what kind of function is doing that? What kind of function is getting the value out and what kind of function like Sure. So it's a function it's a function that takes like a string like a string value and like a string that's like identifying the node and produces an IO value of type unit or something because it's just going to go put the value in there and it's not really going to return anything, right? It's like a void function. Mm-hmm. Like write to DOM node, you know, update DOM node. Yeah, sure, so, yeah, sure. So in this, yeah, and in this case, that's obviously an effectful function because it's a void and it, it takes a string and returns void. So it'd be like string and string to IO of unit. Would be mm-hmm. the thing. And so the, the idea here is that that function, you couldn't write that function in pure Haskell. That would be part of your foreign function interface, right? At some point, the run, either the runtime knows how to do this or some mm-hmm. code that you're interfacing with knows how to go carry out this effectful thing. Okay, so that's interesting. Haskell can't, can't do that. That's not part of Haskell's, Haskell's uh, wheelhouse. Not so. part of Haskell code that you would type. That you yourself do. It would be part, either implemented inside the runtime or in a library that goes out and touches, uh, you know, JavaScript or something. Right, right. Yeah. If we're on, if we're on a web environment, then JavaScript. or it could be in C sharp. It could be a web form or something, or a WinForm or whatever. Sure, but so there, there's some other language that is handling that. Yeah. Uh, well, a language, or again, if it's part of the runtime, so that the effect, the actual like effect that's being carried out is mm-hmm. managed, right? That's why like Haskell itself never carries out the, like in the Haskell language itself, you're never doing side effects. It's only mm-hmm. when the runtime needs to produce a value. By Haskell running sounds the- like this mob boss that's like sitting back and like, no, no, I'm not gonna get my hands dirty and like delegates the killing of of effects to these to its little underlings. And this is to guarantee the promise of referential transparency where you could take anything, like you could take a line that says read from the console and you could extract that out into a uh, like a variable. You could just say like x equals read from console, mm-hmm. and that's like an effect. That's a like a function that produces an I/O string or something like that, right? Because it's going to read from the console and produce a a string in the end. Mm-hmm. You could extract that out into x, and then you could use x in both places. And you would expect that that read from console would happen once, and then put the value into x. Right, if it says x equals read from console. Right, you're thinking that's happening at some sequential point, like during after your event or whatever, whatever fires right. it. But in result, but what's actually happening is that everywhere it says x is just a command to go run the read from console operation and produce a value of type string. Mm-hmm. So you could and absolutely take something that looks totally imperative, extract it out to a variable, and it doesn't change the meaning, even though from an imperative mindset, it would absolutely be changing the meaning. So you're saying that like once you have that x, then you're okay to 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 work with that in in the in the functional world again, like out of the I/O world. Um, so you're still inside your I/O. Okay. You're you're inside of it, but you're operating. You can move into pure functions at that point. So there's there's two things now here. You've got a value. Um, if you say x equals read from console. X mm-hmm. is not the result of read from console. X is the action read from console. Mm-hmm. There is a different... So because a monadic value, you can't just take the value out, right? That's an IO of string. So all you can do is bind that to a new value. So you have to inject a function into it that says, if it succeeded, you know, give me... an IO doesn't really have a fail state in that sense. Um, give me the value of that string and mm-hmm. let me do something with it and produce a new IO. But you're producing a new IO also. Like you're saying there's an action, but the new IO is this is the string in this case that was typed. It's not a string, it's an a new IO string or something like that. Right. So so you could say read from console, that's an IO string. 
Okay. Then you could do some sort of like, uh, you know, concatenate it with some other stuff, right? Uh, combine it with like you typed colon space and then the yeah, string. whatever. Yeah, yeah. That's going to be a new I/O string. So okay. it's still I/O string. And then you're going to feed that the thing inside there. You're going to bind that to another action that says go write that to the console. At the end, you're going to end up with an I/O of unit because you went from an I/O of string. That's your that's your M of A. Your A to M of B is write to console, where A is of type string and B is of type unit. What's what's the units? Unit is like no value. Because okay. what does write to console right. really give you back? Nothing, right. You know, there's okay. nothing, right? So it gives you a unit. I, we talked about that back when, I remember now. Yeah. So you're going to end up with a IO of string bind to this uh, function, this like uh, build up a better string, you know, r- build up my output string, which is going to produce another IO of string. Bind that to write to console, which is going to produce an IO of unit. But it also sounds, so, so because of this though, like let's say I want the length of what was typed. I can't do that is what it sounds. Well, I'm sure I can, but how do I do that? Is it maybe a better way to say that? Because sure. So let's say that, okay, so you have an IO string. You -hmm. can get that string and produce an I, a new IO of whatever you could produce an IO of tuple or tuple of int and string. Mm -hmm. Right. So you have to hold on to the same information. I have my function. I have my function length. It's a pure function and it takes Uh an A and returns a B. Right. Mm -hmm. And every string that goes in is always going to return the same thing. But I can't. I can't use that, or I somehow use that and get an I/O type back from. Oh, um, so tr- technically speaking, all monads are functors, so you could map over your I/O of string to get an mm-hmm. I/O of int. Okay, so I can. So I can use my pure stuff and and like kind of. It can't still work with this I/O stuff. It just stays I/O. It stays I/O. Yeah, exactly. So you're still you're taking your function and you're handing it into the context into the structure of io and io's rules apply and whatnot okay just like maybe it the same would be true of a maybe or a promise or or channel or stream or whatever the list so the idea here is that we we take these ios and we kind of chain them along to to produce more ios of whatever you know the type can change as we go along and then we take that whole big long chain when we're done and we hand it to the runtime and we say please make this happen okay and the and the runtime actually evaluates it to a to a, a value, and the value is the input-output operations actually taking place. That mm-hmm. takes place when the runtime evaluates this whole I/O thing. Now, this is kind of specific to I/O. We're 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 talking about monads in general, but we kind of are like very deep into like the how I/O works in Haskell, which I don't want to get super hung up on because while that is a point that's confusing for a lot of people, that is just one specific use case of monads. What are some other situations? So we talked we, we, we talked about I.O. and I think you said quite clearly, like, that's just one small portion of monads. Yep. Um, can, is, are there other practical examples of monads we can, we can go through? Like you talked about bind, and it sounds like maybe you can use bind outside of this I.O. scenario. Because the binding is the monad, basically, right? Bind is how you go from one monad to the next. So here's an example. Okay. You, um, I had that example before where I had uh, two lookups from two different maps and I got back two maybes. Mm -hmm. So often in that kind of situation, you will use like a monadic thing with maybes where Mm -hmm. you'll say, given the first one, I want to take the value that was in that first one Mm -hmm. and use it in a computation along with the value from the second one. So actually real quick, let's go back to the, uh, to IO because I think this is fairly uh, good use case for this. 
if you do the equals thing, if you say x equals read from console, then x really is the operation read from console. But if you say x left stabby arrow read from console, mm -hmm. that is a different thing. What that means is do a bind behind the scenes and name the a in my a to mb function x. So if we say x left stabby arrow read from console, mm -hmm. right, then x is our a in our a to mb function. We've named it x. But it's all in one line. It, it um, We'll show examples of this in the... Yeah, Haskell wraps this with some syntactic sugar, right? Yeah, this is this is the do notation that Haskell has yeah. to make working with monads easier. And it allows you to do a, a monadic kind of a thing and then do a left stabby arrow and give it a name and do, do another monadic thing and give it a left stabby arrow and, and a name and then take those two values and they're both in scope and you can use both of them to do a combined calculation. So instead of using applicative, this is a way you could get away with... Um, like before applicatives were a thing, uh, or if you don't like applicatives, you could say, go look up the first map and call that, you know, name one, and then go look up the, the value out of the other map and call that name two, and then return name one appended to name two or something like that, wrapped up in a, a maybe. And as a real, so for applicative, didn't we say that order does matter? And maybe that was because of the fact that... Uh that you're not necessarily going in order, right? Like in an applicative, so, they have you have to get the same the same end result no matter what order the things happen in. Is that correct? Yeah, applicative the order of the producing the arguments doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So if you have thing apply thing apply thing, mm -hmm. uh, the first thing is going to be like your function mm -hmm. that's waiting for the arguments, but the two arguments can be produced in any order. That doesn't yeah. matter. Okay. If you do this monadically and you say uh, a equals thing, a, a left stabby arrow equal you know thing, <laughs> mm -hmm. B left stabby arrow other thing, then A will happen first, and then B will happen. They cannot happen in parallel. Which is potentially useful, like if you have like for example some regular arithmetic operations like three plus five times seven, you have to do three plus five before you do the times. Like that's a real obvious simple example, right? But you can't do five times seven before you do three plus five, or you get a different result. Yeah, I mean, you could use this for that. There's probably simpler ways of getting that. Sure, happen. sure. But is that if you, you know, if if that was like you're just a real simple operation, you could do three dot, uh, you know, and then like then is plus five and then dot then is plus seven. And because it's a monad, it's going to go in the right order. I think you could do that. I don't think I've ever seen that happen that way. But I think that's probably. probably right. True. It's maybe not a real practical example because it's so simple, right? It, we're not like we're we're certainly not leveraging the power of monads in doing that, right? Um, but because that, they're monads, like that works for monad does not work for an applicative functor. I'd have to write it out. Um, okay. I feel like you wouldn't use monads to be super duper overkill for that situation. Mm -hmm. I I completely agree. I could, I, I follow you there, but at the same time, it, it's it is more a like, simple situation. It's more like if you wanted to have a thing where you um, read from two files. Like read the contents of file A, then read the mm -hmm. contents of file B. If you did it, and then and then concatenate them. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you did that with applicative, it could read file A or file B first. It could do them in parallel. It could do them in any order, and then the concatenation part would be would ha would be applying those arguments to the function. The, the concatenation 
function. Mm-hmm. If you did it monadically, it would always read file A, then it would read file B, and then it would do the concatenation. So the question comes down to, do you care if there's an order? And sometimes you absolutely want there to be an order, and sometimes you absolutely do not want there to be an order. You want it yeah. to happen in parallel. That, that's the, one of the main differences between applicatives and monads. Okay. Uh, but this do notation thing with the arrow, the stabby arrow, is saying, if there is a value to be gotten, give me the value out. And you're not actually getting the value out. What you're really doing is you're producing that bind function that's being passed in, but it looks like you're getting the value out. So it, it can look very much like imperative code. Um, you know, read the value from the console, do a thing with it, write the value back to the console. It looks almost like you would expect C sharp to look like, except it has these little like left stabby arrows going on instead of equal signs. Mm. Uh, but it can kind of trick you into that, right? Um, but under the hood, it's actually turning into this bind thing where you're inside IO and you're creating this chain of IOs with these operations in between them to transform from one IO value to another IO value along the way. And again, we'll have an example of this in the show notes. Uh, when you see it, I think it will make that a little more obvious. I've used this with maybes where you want to say, go get these four things and any of them could fail. And you use this like left stabby arrow assignment thing. And the nice thing is, is that if any of them fail, you just get like a nothing at the end. So all of your error handling cases, you don't have to deal with in this situation. You're not pattern matching and saying, get the first thing, do a case of on it. If it was nothing, this is what we do. If it was just this, go to, go get the next one. You're able to just in a series a series of steps, say, get the first thing, get the second thing, get the third thing, get the fourth thing, use this left arrow assignment thing. And at the end, if we get to that fifth line, it means all the four previous four lines have succeeded because we've gone through a bunch of binds and those binds would only fire off if we were in the just case, if we still had a just that had been passed along. Yeah. I can, I mean, like a real obvious scenario there is if you're loading little bits and pieces of stuff from a relational database and you get your first thing and you know, you, you want to load that first thing because if the first thing doesn't exist and the second thing certainly won't exist kind of. Right. You're looking up like an ID that you need to go do a join on some other table. Right. Exactly. And so, that's a scenario where that's another scenario where that you have to do things in order. Yeah, I think a sure. database transaction is a perfect use case for a monad. A database transaction can be a monad. Mm-hmm. So you have this data type called transaction or whatever, database transaction, and you implement bind for it and you turn mm-hmm. it into a monad and then you're able to use it with a special syntax if you're in Haskell or PureScript. And that allows you to sequence this series of operations and you can build into the bind for database transaction what happens when it fails, right? Does it does it go to the next step? Does it try to recover? Does it retry? So for example, the bind, the semantics of bind for a database transaction might be do the operation. If it results in failure, uh, retry the operation, mm-hmm. right? You, you could produce a result in which it, you can retry uh, as many times as you want to where there's some threshold that's built into it or there's a back off policy where it's going to try retry and then it's going to wait 10 milliseconds and it's going to retry again like you can build in arbitrarily complex semantics for your bind for your specific monad that you're building okay that makes it sound a lot more useful than just okay now you can do things in order because you're getting more power than just okay you can do things in order it gives you 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 might get some you're, you're controlling doing things in order or bailing out yeah you're controlling the order right and this is where again this goes back to that programmable semicolon what if you could say my operation is a then b then c then d except that these semicolons are actually kind of magical and do a whole lot of logic to mm-hmm. determine if we actually do a again or if we go on to b yeah yeah 
And that's the value. If you get nothing else, that big picture idea is why monads are so useful in many domains. And so you tend to have one or two monads that kind of define the problem space you're in. They're like a, they're like um, a database transaction or the state that you're working with. There's a state monad that can hold on to a bunch of uh, values for you. And then you can do a series of operations that all have access to this state object, like it's a record or a tuple or a list or something. And it kind of is ambiently available within this monad. It can never escape the monad but it's available within the monad. And then there's a way to sort of run a value all the way through and, and get your final answer at the end. All right. So maybe I was misunderstanding you here earlier because you, when you were saying getting a value out of the monad, but from the way you've been talking about it, we can't escape a monad. Given, given purely the monad interface, state has a special function that knows how to get the value out. So, Well, is it the value out or operating on? And maybe I'm mincing words here, but... It's a, my understanding is like if we make that database application, or we're, we're talking to the database like you were talking about, right? Mm-hmm. At some point, I have to declare a function that's going to do all of this. And it's going to reach out and say, go do this database operation, and mm-hmm. it gets back. Uh, and then I have to enter a monad, right? And Or a monadic operation. I have to enter my bind. And within that bind, I get to operate on the data that the database comes back with. If you're in a monad, right? yes. Yeah. If I'm in a monad. Yeah. But my function that I'm writing itself can't return a pure value. It has to return a, a, another monadic operation. The bind right? does. But at the end of the binds, you end up with another yeah. database transaction of A. It is perfectly valid to write for your type a extract mm-hmm. function that, that knows how to intelligently extract a value out of that database transaction type. That, that's a valid thing okay. to do. Maybe has one of these. IO does not have one of these. Interesting. Right. There's no extract from IO, but there is a extract-like function for maybes. Is that the pattern matching part of maybe? You could do it with pattern matching. You could do it... I mean, there's... I thought when you pattern matched, it's like, okay, well, now you're working with a just of something or a nothing, mm-hmm. but, but you're still speaking within the semantics of a maybe at that point, right? Because those are just two ways to get to a maybe. Sure. And, and it will run the one that is the kind of value that you got. Right. But like you so can So if you have a maybe I can get you can get a value out though. If you say case blah of nothing arrow just a, you know, arrow, you've got that a now. You could take that a, you could uh pass along to another function. That you could return that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you I can ex- have to see that. You can that extract values out of maybes. That is a valid thing to do. You can extract values out of state because those because maybes are pure, right? You could do computations on maybe that's not effectful. The the place where they get weird is if we're in a database transaction, we're we're implicitly in I/O, and things can't escape I/O. So in that situation, no, you won't be able to get the the only thing that you could get out of your database transaction would be an I/O of whatever, right? It's still going to have that like I/O wrapper on it if if the database transaction itself is not just an IO, like an alias for IO. But if I, okay, so if I do an operation on, say, for instance, and maybe even though we said it's not momentic, but, or a promise or whatever, I might not actually get a value out of that. So when I say extract and there's nothing there, now what happens? So that's specific to the structure of maybes. State is a monad that does not have Mm -hmm. multiple cases. State is just state. Okay. So you always know you will get a value out at the end or else it wouldn't have compiled. So it's totally safe to say, give me that value. So I get like an identity value at that point? It's not an identity value. It's run the state uh, monad and all the binds that are attached to it, right? 
run through that whole mm -hmm. chain, do, 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 and at the very end, we're going to end up with a state of whatever. So we're going to go from a state of A to a state of B. I mean, there's a lot of intermediate steps, right? <laughs> Potentially. But we're okay. going from state of A to a state of B. At the end, we can pull that B out. That's totally valid. There's no way that'll fail. The only reason we have to account for failure is because maybe says I allow failure. But there's types that don't allow failure. For example, if we have our state machine, let's say that in either of our three states, A, B, and C, there's always a value inside, like a string or something. It doesn't matter if we're in A, B, or C by the time we're done. We can still pull that string out, right? That's safe to do. There's a way to get that string, no matter if you're in A, B, or C. So we can write some sort of extract function on our state machine that gets us that string out. And that will always succeed. We don't have to deal with like uh, the potential for failure there. So that, this is where I go back to, this is specific to the monad. This is specific okay. to the structure that you're working with. And many structures okay. do have the potential for failure because that's the real world, right? You know, you have validation. And, and most of the and... ones that we're talking about do work that way. I yes, guess, so yes, yes. But um, it is possible to write a get me the value out kind of a function for certain monads, for certain structures. So is it fair to say monads are a fairly deep topic? Monads are a very deep Even topic. It's not necessarily difficult. Is yeah. it fair to say that monads are a, like a burrito? It is not fair to say that monads are a burrito. So funny story about that. Uh, that was written as a joke and people like took it seriously. They took it seriously. Like, it, it's, it's very strange. This whole like, I can't under, you know, once you understand what a monad is, you lose the ability to explain it. It's totally not true. And monads is like the single most overblown topic in all functional programming, in my opinion. Like, they are not that complex. They may not be complex, but going in without an understanding of them can be difficult. Definitely. And and that's why it's good to talk about I.O., because some of that is a little more subtle, maybe, in how that works out. Yeah. You were saying earlier that monads are more strict. So I was wondering if it means it's more strict in adhering to a specific structure type rather than you can only use monads with I don't know, say lists and other structures. When we say strict, real quick, we mean strict versus lazy, right? Oh, okay. Okay. Maybe yeah, I but I did say earlier there, monads are more powerful. Um, and as a result, there are less types that can inhabit a monad. Like there's, there's less, inst sorry, there's less instances of uh, monads. Like there are fewer types that can satisfy monad than functor. Monad is more powerful. So there's an inverse relationship between the number of types that can satisfy a certain uh, like interface mm -hmm. and the power of that interface. So the more powerful it is, the less types will be able to do that thing. Okay. That That's sort of the relationship there. But as a result, um, because they're very powerful, <laughs> often the monads that we have are very important to us and very commonly used. So in most applications, you have a couple, in like Haskell PureScripty type applications, you have a couple big monads that you use in your application, and they're very important and you use them kind of all over the place, and they really define a lot of the tone of what you're doing. Like in an HTTP... Not just, it sounds like you're also talking about just the domain in which you're working in. Right, because right? they tend to be domain-specific. Is... Right? A database transaction is domain-specific. And this is why at uh, LambdaConf, you see all these talks that are like, using monads to solve world hunger. and <laughs> Right. You, know, <laughs> you use monads to produce food and... Stuff like that. And, but what all of them have, here's how I used monads to tackle some problem. That's really interesting. Somehow. And they're often going to be, this is how I took this unique structure that I wanted and implemented it as a monad so that I could get the spiffy do syntax from Haskell. And then I could write it as if it was this nice sequence of steps that are 
that are very straightforward, when in reality, in between each of those steps, like crazy bind stuff's going on, right? Bind is like doing all this work for me in my specific monad. Ah, okay. So going, I guess, back to like the wedding analogy, then there's like certain steps. You have to get the certificate from whatever legal jurisdiction, and then you also have to speak with maybe if you're a religious person, the religious uh, person who would... So anyway, there's a bunch of steps to go through, and maybe it doesn't have to happen in the same order for every couple getting married, but there are certain steps that they do have to go through. Yes, and you could use you could implement the bind on your marriage monad or whatever <laughs> to enforce those. And if at any point the invariant is not met, it returns a failure case for that monad, right? Okay. Like an invalid marriage, right? Like if, if 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 at any point you didn't do the right thing and you try to go to the next step, mm-hmm. it could fail it. And so this can be used for validation kind of things. This can be used for. Uh, parsing, although although a lot of these things can also be done and in, in an applicative way, um, applicative has some of the same power, right? So there's there's a little bit of wiggle room of where th- where you end up, um, but a lot of uh, monads tend to be very um, like high conce- high concept. Like we talk about the state monad, the either monad, the IO monad. We usually don't talk about the maybe functor. We talk we say maybe is a functor, but we don't talk about the maybe functor. Ah, so okay. monads tend to have this like it's this big context that you're going to live inside and so we kind of think about them a little bit differently than this tool that you're going to use and as you mentioned there's significantly fewer of them right yes but they tend to be important and uh dominant in your thinking they have a lot of significance they yeah, have a lot of significance yeah there's not that many but the ones that exist are significant well i mean there's there's potentially Many, 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 but there's still less than functors and less than applicative functors. Right, right. And so if uh, we can link to some examples of uh, varieties of monads that you may not be familiar with from sort of like in the imperative world um, that exist. And Scott Walshens, I always get this mixed up, but it's the railroad-oriented programming, oriented development mm-hmm. talk that he does. Um, that one kind of goes over some of the like it's almost monadic he uses maybes if i remember right but it's it's like you know he reaches out and talks to a database he does a regular expression over here he does all these things and like you said earlier like it wraps up all that error handling kind of in one nice little thing it bails out early if there's a problem and so that one might be a good one to look at as a resource we can we can link to that definitely any other questions uh, I am kind of curious. Is there something that is the opposite of bind, like unbind? Yes. So there's something called a co-monad. Co- if you put co in front of anything, it just reverses it's all the, the arrows. Ah. So it's like codomain. Like codomain, exactly. So there's something called, um, I think it's called unwrap, actually. Oh. Uh, and in, and it goes from so bind takes an A to MB, and it takes an MA to B. Or you, you could say it's an MB to A, right? So it's the exact opposite. So you given an M of A, it's a function that goes from MA to B. And per our discussion, not all monads have a co-monad. Right. And I'm sure there's co-monads that, don't, that aren't monads. But a lot of things actually turn out to be monads and co-monads. Like they can support both. To, it's, it's a co-monad and also a monad? Yeah, you can, you can support both interfaces. Um, in the same way that, for example, a... 
like an array can be both a stack and a queue, or sorry, a, a stack and a, uh, yeah, a stack and a queue, even though you might think of those as opposites okay. of each other. Like those are the exact opposite kind of thing, right? One is first in, yep. first out. The other one's last in, first out. But an array can support both of those interfaces. So co-monads are great for you have a value and then you can just keep getting new things out of it. <laughs> so actually I was wrong on the signature. It, you go from an M of A to a B and a new like M of B. So it'll, it gives you like the next thing in the sequence. It gives you like a tuple back. So you, you extract out a value and you get the next co-monad, co-monad value that you can then extract from again. So you can just keep extracting until you run out of values. There has to be some way to signal that you're out of values. Are, are comatic operations also monadic in the terms of sequence? I guess it would have to be, right? Yes, I believe that is correct. Because you can't, you, you produce the next comonad that you're then going to extract from in as a result of your extract. Yeah. Right. So so it's you're going to sequence them, but you're unpacking values now instead of... So you go from a single thing and you're going to pull values out of it versus chaining yeah. them along and producing new, new monads. So yeah, there's there's codes of a lot of things. Okay. There's cofunctors and all kinds of things. Co-lattices? Oh, I'm sure there's... Because this is the thing. If you can reverse the arrows, like literally with code, you just reverse the arrows. Now, the implications yeah. of that can be huge in terms of what it does. Yeah. But the technical part is pretty simple. S same with monads, right? Like there's not a lot to monad. It's got that pure operation that takes an A and turns it into an M of A. And it's got bind, which is just map followed by join. Like not super difficult signatures, but the implications are huge. And if you look around at the, the internal implementations of some of the monads, they can be quite uh, tricky in terms of what's going on. And certainly understanding an intuitive feel for how to use them is not something you're going to have immediately. It's going to take some exposure. All right. So uh, we have moved to putting our feedback at the end of the episode. So we'll go ahead and go over that right now. We had uh, sort of one piece of feedback from Ben Kushigian. Ben K. Ben K, yeah. <laughs> he uh, was referring to episode eight about morphisms. And uh, he, he went to a fair amount of detail. Uh, the gist of what he's saying is... From a categorical theory, category theory perspective and a, and a more mature mathematical perspective, our definition of isomorphism was woefully inadequate. <laughs> and this is true. We are not uh, pretending that we are sort of a comprehensive uh, description of what an isomorphism is. We're trying to give a intuition, a broad intuition. So I would encourage you that if you're going to speak about morphisms and you're going to uh, want to have a serious discussion about them, then take what we gave you as a starting point and then go and read more about it. Uh, there's a lot more detail and nuance there than we were able to cover in our episode. I do feel, though, that we do do a good job to toot our own horn here. Uh, specifically, the Aaron guy does a really great job <laughs> of... Uh, um, I think we do a good job of settling that starting point. So you really can, if you really are interested in any of these topics, you really can take them a little bit further. And some of them, we, I think we, we do cover almost all of. And other ones, there's still more to learn. But we, we're certainly giving you a solid, solid starting point here on the cast to go out and learn more. So like for monads, we definitely did not cover everything there is to do about monads. Uh, but we hope that through this, since reading some type signatures, looking at the show notes, that all that together will give you enough of a starting point that you can then go go engage with the material that you'll find online. All right. And with that, we are done. Thank you everyone for joining us and we'll see you next time. Thanks everyone. It was a blast.
Before we go, have you folks heard of literate programming at all? Uh, I have. Nope. It's, it's, you know, if you haven't, it's the idea of like, especially in Emacs users, you've got like documents that are like interwoven with executable code. And so you can put like all your text and say, this is why I'm doing this operation and then jump into it. I was thinking about giving literate programming in Lisp a go, but I don't know if the pros outweighs the cons. <laughs> that one's from uh, Lady Ava. I got, I got given one this time. My, my head is literally in my hands. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. See you next time. Bye. Bye. See ya.